whether they believe in some of its specific factual findings. And this comprehensive data set is, I think, unprecedented in terms of any other post-conflict society. Nowhere else do you have that kind of very high quality social science research data that allows you to really explore what these people actually believe or not um, in, 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 um, uh, in as much detail. Um, so I will, I will talk to you a bit about that. Then um, essentially I concluded in that article that the ICTY had no impact of that kind. It did not manage to persuade anybody who actually lives in the former Yugoslavia that its findings are true if those people didn't want to believe that anyway. Um, the question is how, why, you know, what, what explains this failure? And that, that's something I did in the second piece where I really approached this question of, of this lack of impact from a social psychology perspective. And uh, you can read about it, it's, it's in the Georgetown Journal of International Law, you can find it on SSRN. Um, uh, another person who has also written about this topic from the same perspective is this guy called Stuart Ford who wrote a, a very, very, very good article in the Vanderbilt uh, Journal of Transnational Law a couple of years ago. And finally, the article that I'm working now, that I'm finishing now, which is really what my topic of the talk is gonna be after I've done through the preliminaries, is whether we can generalize this experience of the ICTY in the former Yugoslavia and whether we can draw lessons, whether we can predict on the basis of that experience what will happen elsewhere, right? What's gonna happen to other courts and tribunals? And really, you know, that's, that, that's what I, I want to do this now, and it's going to be for an edited book. Um, okay, so let me start off. I will basically go, uh, I will read out some of this stuff if, it, if you can see it. Um, I will basically go through this kind of three steps. So I will first talk a bit about the ICTY and its lack of impact in that particular persuasive sense. I will then give you some, some of the explanation as to why the ICTY failed, and then I will really move on to my, the main thrust of my argument, which is generalizing to other courts and tribunals. Um, by the way, when I say lack of impact or failure, I don't mean to say that the institution as a whole had no impact or failed. There are many, many ways by which you can measure impact on many, many, many different things. The main thing being that some very, very nasty people got punished that would never have been punished otherwise. So, I mean, I, I don't want to go there. That's simply not my topic. My topic is whether the local people who live there believe in what the tribunal says does, whether they trust it, whether they believe in its finding, because it's only if they do that that tribunal can have long-term effects about promoting you know, truth, reconciliation, peace, whatever you want to do with it. So if you, if you play a little game and go on the ICTY website, you know they're winding down now, but ever since the start they had a very nice section on the website about its achievements. And it's always nice when you talk to somebody, what's, what are your achievements? And here's the ICTY achievements in its own words. And so for example, the ICTY says, and this text has been on the, for, for ages on, on their website, the tribunal's judgments have contributed to creating a historical record, combating denial and preventing attempts at revisionism, and they provided the basis for future transitional justice initiatives in the region. The ICTY has established crucial facts about crimes once subject to dispute beyond a reasonable doubt. And they also say, the detail in which the ICTY's judgments describe the crimes and the, involved of those the involvement of those convicted make it impossible for anyone to dispute the reality of the horrors that took place in all of these places. Unfortunately, the reality is that all of this stuff is not true. 
right? So all of the stuff they're talking about are still subject to dispute. When they say, you know, they're preventing revisionism, they make it impossible for anyone to dispute the reality, everybody there is in fact disputing the reality. So what I want to show you now is some of the survey data so you can see just how, just the level of this denial. Yeah. So the biggest crime of the Yugoslav conflicts was the 1995, the July 1995 genocide in Srebrenica where Bosnian Serb uh, military people killed 7,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys in a couple of days. If you ask the ethnic Serb population of Serbia, so the majority population of Serbia, only 10% of that population accept the account of the facts as determined by the STY. So that they say that more than 7,000 Bosnian civilian prisoners were executed. Everybody else, so 90%, engage in some other form of denial. It can be soft or it can be hard, but they are all engaging in some kind of denial. So for example, 36% say, okay, their crimes happened. But it was a lot less than 7,000 people. Right? You're exaggerating. Or there were no executions, there was battle. Or nothing happened, you're making this up. Or uh, I have no idea. So again, only 10% of the ethnic Serb population of Serbia accept the facts about the most significant crime. You know, think Germans and Auschwitz. What we would think if today 10% of Germans believed in Auschwitz. Right? This is what it's like in Serbia. If you go into Bosnia, so these are all other crimes committed during the war. Some of them really, really, really horrible. Um, the top two bars are the Bosniak Croat Federation. So the respondents here will overwhelmingly be Bosnian Muslims, Bosniaks, or Croats. Whereas the, top, the, the lower two bars are the Republika Srpska, the Bosnian Serb entity. The first, the upper bar is, have you heard of this event? The lower bar is, do you believe it happened? So when you look at these crime, crimes, so for example, the Priedor controlled, uh, the Priedor con uh, detention concentration camps. These are the most serious crimes in the Bosnian war other than Srebrenica. They were, they were, you know, you had these big debates about whether they are also genocide or not. You had all those images about these inmates who look almost as if they came from Auschwitz, etc. So. 60% of, of, of the Federation respondents say they heard and, and believe in those crimes. Only 15% of the Republika Srpska respondents heard of them, heard of them. And only 6% believe they happened. And that go goes on again for all of the other crimes. I mean, the, probably the most well-known of these things is the, the siege of Sarajevo where for years a European capital that organized the Olympic Games was under siege. So again, 90%, you would expect this, in the Federation, 90% of people heard about it and believe it. 43% of, of Bosnian Serbs say they heard of it. And only 24 say they believe in it. This is a question of the, whether you believe this actually happened. Okay, so denial is incredibly widespread. Perhaps, you know, the, the, the last two of these crimes are actually crimes against Serbs. And you can notice how the per percentage of the Federation respondents drops. Right? So Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Croats, like Serbs, are less likely to believe in crimes when they're committed by members of their own group. 
But paradoxically, more Bosnian Muslims believe in crimes committed by Bosnian Muslims against Serbs than Serbs do. You can still see that the, that the numbers of the Serb respondents, even though much higher than when it comes to crimes committed by Serbs, are still lower than the Federation respondents. So they live, these communities, they live in completely divided realities. This is polling in Serbia about crimes against Croats or in Croatia. So, two-thirds of respondents don't believe in the most famous crime that Serb forces committed in Croatia, which is this Vukovar hospital where a bunch of people got killed. Um, however, they all know, and three-quarters of them believe, that Croats committed ethnic cleansing against Serbs in the Operation Storm at the, at the end of the, of the... I am so sorry. At the end of the... Uh, the war. But you do that so gently and so eloquently. <laughs> if you look at Croatia, it's a mirror image. It's a complete mirror image. So Croats obviously believe in crimes committed against Croats, yeah? But they don't believe, by, by, by an enormous margin, right? In crimes committed by Croats. So um, two-thirds of Croatian respondents say they've never they don't believe that Croatian forces killed, abused, or robbed the Serb population at the end of the war in Croatia. Almost four-fifths deny Croatian involvement in crimes in Bosnia. If you hear the current Croatian prime minister, a very nice, gentle right-wing person who just became prime minister, he says, well, when we were in Bosnia, we were only there at the invitation of the Bosnian government. We did nothing bad. So this is something that you know still reverberates Right, 20 years later. Um, this is Kosovo. Again, I'm not going to spend much time about it. So 78% of Serbs believe that Kosovo Albanians committed crimes against Serbs. The same percentage be don't believe in crimes committed by Serbs against Albanians. For example, this one is particularly horrible. Because after the Milosevic regime fell in Serbia in 2000, in my city, right, in, in the capital of Serbia, we dug up mass graves uh, that of people who were transported in trucks, in their, their corpses were transported to be buried in Belgrade. Again, 70% don't believe they saw the footage on TV at some point. They don't believe in it. Okay? If you look at Kosovo itself, this is from a different survey. This is in 2007, 80% of Kosovo Albanians did not want to accept that members of their own people who could, could, could commit crimes. That number in 2012 is a teeny bit lower. But look at what happens to the Serb population. As the ICTY was basically rendering judgments that exonerated Kosovo Albanians for lack of evidence because the witnesses were intimidated and so on, while at the same time convicted Serb defendants, you can see how the, 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 the uh, proportion of the Serb population that accepted Serbs committed crimes fell, and the proportion of the Serb population that denied that Serbs committed crime rose. So that's the, right, the very depressing reality uh, of, of Yugoslavia today. This is 20 years after the conflicts have ended. So you have an exceptionally high level of the rejection of the ICTY's factual findings. If you, look, if you ask questions, do you, do you trust the ICTY, Serbs and Croats hate it. They hate it by you know, three quarters of the population hate it. 
the populations that trust the ICTY, the groups that trust the ICTY, are the Bosniaks, the Bosnian Muslims, and the Albanians. Why do they trust it? Because the ICTY, as a general matter, validated their own victimhood narratives, whereas it did not validate the victimhood narratives of the, of the Serbs and the Croats. Now, what I cannot do uh, from these surveys, I cannot show you causality. So it is not possible, I cannot measure, you know, the trust in a certain crime a day before the judgment is issued and then a day after, or I don't know, sometime after. It's very hard to do that. And it's very hard even from that to draw causal connections. So I am not, you know, capable of directly measuring the impact of the ICTY. It could be, you know, that were it not for the ICTY, these terribly low numbers would have been even lower. Yeah? It could be. It could also be the other way around, that the ICTY made things worse. That could also be true. Again, I, it's, it's, it, I cannot conclude that from the surveys alone. Also, as with all surveys, see Brexit, see Trump, whatever, right? There is a polling error of some kind. Again, the numbers, the differences here are so big that whatever the polling error is, it is swallowed up. But some respondents may be deceptive. You know, some respondents do believe they have heard of the siege of Sarajevo, but they don't want to admit it. Yeah? So there are some people like that. I don't know how many, but there, there must be some. Um, we see that, for example, from the fact that more Serbs in Serbia accept that they've heard of events in Bosnia than Bosnian Serbs do, who actually live there. I, that tells you that the population there is being essentially, partly at least, consciously uh, deceptive. So basically, the, the, the findings of the surveys are consistent with a hypothesis that the ICTY either had a moderating impact or an aggravating impact, a polarizing impact, but whatever impact it had, had to have been very modest. Right. Okay, so that's the empirical stuff about the ICTY. So, the question is, how do we then explain this? And as I said, I approached this whole question from uh, 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 you know, a very, very, very interesting theoretical standpoint of social psychology, which is a very big discipline, um, and which uh, tries to um, establish how people reason about things in a social context, basically. Um, An enormous amount of work has been done about this, some of this work. You actually, even, you, you may not have done any psychology, but you are definitely familiar with. For example, research in cognitive biases like confirmation bias. And, and I'll talk about a bit of it further on. Anyway, so if you look at the findings of the surveys, you could have a very cynical explanation. You could say all of these people are lying. They know this stuff happened, but they're all lying. Right? They simply refuse to say it publicly. I personally don't think such a cynical hypothesis is actually concordant with reality, at least with my experience of talking to people in the former Yugoslavia. It is unlikely that millions and millions and millions of people are consciously lying about things. So what we need to understand is while there are some people who are fully aware that what they're saying is not true, right? And these cynical, rational manipulators of public opinion, the vast majority of the ordinary people actually are decent people in some, or think of themselves as decent people in some, some, some fundamental way. 
but the way they reason about this information they get still leads them astray into denial. And the question is how that happens. What's the process that enables that to happen? And basically my, arg my argument is that this process happens because of an interplay of numerous objective and subjective factors that essentially limit rational human cognition, that make it impossible for you or very difficult for you to think in this, uh, about this, these issues in a way that will lead you to an accurate uh, uh, um, uh, result. And so they engage essentially in a form of reasoning that protects their sense of identity. And they do this in a way that also preserves their own sense of moral rectitude. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. Right? They honestly believe that what you're telling them about crimes committed by Serbs is untrue. Or crimes against Croats or Albanians or whoever. So what you have now in, in the former Yugoslavia is really communities that live in parallel realities. They have their own versions of history of what happened in the war, what happened in, in much further off history. You know, I call this the Wikipedia approach to reality. You know, you know that Wikipedia, you can, anybody can edit it, right? But there is not one Wikipedia, there are many Wikipedias. And in my language, there are actually four or five. This is all one language, by the way, but there's a Wikipedia in Serbian, there's a Wikipedia in Croatian, there's a Wikipedia in Serbo-Croatian, there's a Wikipedia in Bosnian, plus there's the Albanian stuff. And if you go through these, again, it's the same language, and you read articles about the same issue, you will see they, they present different versions of reality. Yeah? And how do they do that? Because their editors in this authoritative process agreed on what the truth is, basically. And so these communities have essentially agreed within themselves about what the official narrative of the truth of the past, both more recent and more ancient, is. And they not only know this truth, right? It's not a question of fact that they understand or know somehow. They feel it in their gut. Yeah? So think Donald Trump, right? Facebook fake I've news. You never heard of it. <laughs> think Facebook fake news, right? People read stuff and they believe in that stuff because they want to believe in it, even though it's fake. Uh, and even we are prone to that. Even we highly intelligent, uh, super objective, dispassionate people, you all read one newspaper. You don't read five different newspapers. And you pick that one newspaper for a reason. And you pick your website that you read for a reason. Uh, so we're all prayed to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent, to, to this type of reasoning. So, what are these uh, objective and subjective limitations on essentially information processing uh, by ordinary people? So first, there's, there's what they call objective limitations. The first problem is distance. How do you know something? Yeah? So you can say, I know it if I see it. You know, I know Dapo is a wonderful human being because I can see Dapo, right? How do I know that whether 8,000 Bosnian Muslims were killed in Srebrenica. How do I know? I have no way of knowing that. I wasn't there. Yeah? I didn't do any personal investigative step. I didn't dig up the mass graves. I didn't do forensic analysis. I didn't count them. How do you know that 6 million Jews perished in the Holocaust? There's no way you know this from your personal experience. You know this because you rely on other people who have done some kind of primary research. And actually, you're relying on a chain of other people 
that have done this type of research, and then ultimately you choose who to believe. That's what you do. You choose to believe the official textbook narrative. Normally, for most of us, for most things. That goes not simply for historical fact. How do you know, I don't know, that the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around? Now, if I asked you to prove it now, you know, do your Kepler thing or whatever, 95% of us can't prove that. You know it because you believe in the science, in, in what scientists tell you. You believe what your science teacher told you, right? So there's this chain of authority for most things in, in the human experience about how we get to know things. For most cases in the former Yugoslavia, the overwhelming majority of people did not have experience of the overwhelming majority of crimes. Yeah? They were not there. So the, they have to rely on mediators, like the media, like the Serbian state TV. They have to rely on them. Or the Croatian intelligentsia, or politicians. They have to rely on them. They have no choice. Yeah? But they have to make a choice as to who to believe and who not to believe. Similarly, most people lack the time and resources and capacity to think about this stuff in any rigorous way. Imagine you are, I don't know, a cleaner or an office worker. You work all day. You might work two jobs because the average salary in Serbia today, for example, 300 euros a month. You have a family you need to feed. How much time in your life do you have to think about the genocide in Srebrenica? Yeah? You have no time to think about it. So you will actually think about these things in a very quick, impulsive way and you're going to be susceptible to more outside influence in what opinions you form. Third objective factor. It is actually, in a kind of chain of reasoning, it is fairly easy to avoid revising beliefs about particular events you have previously reached. All you need to say to reject the ICTY's findings about any particular crime is to say that the ICTY is biased against Serbs or biased against Croats or whoever. It's in America's pocket and the West hates us. It is so easy to do. It takes minimal effort, especially when you have a thing happening from time to time that fits really well with that kind of approach. Huh? Finally, because nationalism is still today, to this day, the main mobilizing ideology of all of the countries of the former Yugoslavia, all of this stuff is of daily relevance. And all of this stuff is used by very cynical, rational manipulators of public opinion to their own benefit. And they control the media, they control the education system, they control everything. Yeah. So actually, there are people who are predators in this sort of world, and they are preying on the weak and vulnerable, if you want to put it that way. Um, and nobody can really escape that. I mean, uh, the, the, it, simply the influence of this stuff is pervasive. On the subjective end, right, so it comes simply to your internal mental processing. First, you have this whole set of cognitive biases. So things that lead us astray in a particular fashion when we reason about it. And, and you know, so much psychological work has been done on this that shows, for example, that even expert statisticians can make uh, uh, biased errors in reasoning when they rely on their intuitions. So our intuitions are... Uh, things that make us work very, very quickly in situations where it's simply an evolutionary advantage for us to do things very, very quickly rather than sit down and think for two hours. 
Yeah? And, and uh, in those types of situations, we're very prone to biased reasoning that can be perhaps correct 80% of the time, but there will be the 20% of the time where it's not correct. The main such bias is confirmation bias, which means what? That when you receive a new piece of information, you will process that information in a biased uh, way. You will assimilate it in a biased way so that you confirm what you already believe. Uh, that, that's essentially confirmation bias, which gives primacy to information that you were exposed to first. Now think, for example, in the former Yugoslavia, before the ICTY could say anything about any particular crime, you had a whole series of you know, propaganda outlets bombarding this population about the truth about what had happened. Yeah? It's not like any of these courts, like the ICTY, enters a, a, a post-conflict situation on a blank slate. There's loads of stuff already on that slate, and it will have primacy in the minds of people uh, that, that sort of skews any reasoning they engage in. Then you have questions like in-group and out-group bias, the fact that it's, you know, that sort of you know, is, is, is a big part of collective identity. When you are identifying with a particular group and you see a particular other group as the adversary of that group, Serbs, Croats, whatever, Jews, Palestinians, again, pick your poison, yeah? you will tend to assimilate information in a way that favors your group and disfavors the other group. Yeah? Um, the psychologists have shown this, even for this type of bias, even, for, for example, uh, when it comes to completely arbitrarily designed groups. So they have done experiments where, like, take 20 psychology students and divide them into two groups. Right? On no, no, no basis. It's simply arbitrary. And members of these groups will exhibit in-group, out-group bias. And just think about how bigger that is when it comes to tribal issues, right? to questions of collective identity. Another big um, you know, limitation on reasoning is the link between cognition and emotion. You might think you are being perfectly rational about something, but you're not. You, when, whenever you know something, whenever you're trying to understand something, the part of your brain that deals with emotion is also involved. This has been shown on a completely neuroscience basic physiological level. So for example, there's an article where they put a series of people through an MRI machine that scans their brain while showing them some disgusting images. And the experimenter could predict whether the person votes Democrat or Republican on the basis of their reaction to a, to a dismembered animal. Yeah? So there's a, there's, there's a, and it's, it's not necessarily the way you think it might be, but, uh, <laughs> but it shows you that there's a, the, the, the neural pathways that deal with cognition and emotion are the same neural pathways. Yeah? It's not like you have the rational part of your brain and the emotional part of your brain. They're one and the same thing. Um, finally, you have, you may have seen this very, very important book by this famous psychologist called Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize in economics called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, uh, where you, essentially you have this big development of uh, theories about uh, how we reason. Um, he builds on the theories of, of, of other uh, psychologists before him, for example, to show you that, there's a, uh, that there are two sort of systems that make your brain work. There's a system one, which is very fast, quick, impulsive, prone to error and bias. If I say two plus two, you have now all thought the word four in your head. 
you could not have helped but think the word for. If I say capital of France, you are thinking Paris. There's no way for you not to be thinking Paris. Yeah? But if I say 225 times 371, nothing happens. You have to take your piece of paper and you have to calculate. Right? So that's the difference between system one and system two. And when you have a lack of time and resources, when emotions are strong, you will be prone to think very, very quickly about things uh, uh, in, in a way that can lead you astray. So heuristics are essentially mental shortcuts that allow you to skip through a complicated problem in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a quick way. The basic heuristic here will be, who do I trust about, you know, when it comes to information about atrocities? Do I trust the STY or do I trust my political leader, my religious leader, my neighbor, and so on. And the ICTY will tend to lose out. Okay, so after I have gone through all of this ecological mumbo jumbo that I'm not gonna bother you with anymore, I essentially come up with a conclusion that the lack of impact in terms of persuading the, the peoples of the former Yugoslavia is not the ICTY's fault, right? If you had a perfect ICTY, which this one was not, but if you had a perfect one, if you had 10 of them, I don't, don't think the situation would have been radically different, okay? Um, these are not issues where you need to accumulate a mountain of evidence and suddenly you will reach a tipping point and past that tipping point, people will have no choice but to believe that this is true. You know, if you remember the first slide of the STY, when they say, uh, uh, you know, uh, it is impossible to deny the reality. This is not like it. It's always possible to deny the reality. So, for example, think about uh, uh, people who believe that vaccinations cause autism. Yeah? Try persuading them that they don't. If you show them one academic study, another academic study, a third academic study published in The Lancet, do you think that's gonna change their mind? It's not gonna change their mind. Think about people who deny there's such a thing as climate change, right? Are you gonna persuade them by telling them yet another scientific study has documented that we have now risen in, I don't know, by how many degrees since 1900? Again, they are not going to be persuaded simply by you providing them with more evidence, okay? Again, creationists. You're not gonna persuade people in the theory of evolution by telling them scientists say so. It's just, I mean, if they had decided to disbelieve it, they have decided to disbelieve it on a level of identity that you cannot touch simply by producing more information. Or I know my favorite example, people who believe in homeopathy. You know, they take a little sugar and water and they think it cures cancer, okay? And you can try to persuade them. I have done so by God. It never works. And th therefore I do not engage in that type of conversation there's, there's probably one of you uh, here in this room right now. Don't talk to me about it, okay? But again, the fact that I tell you now the Australian Council for whatever national health has conducted a meta-study that has surveyed 100 different studies on homeopathy and there is no evidence that the thing works, you're not gonna be persuaded. Yeah, it's not gonna work. Okay, so the power, right, of this kind of identity protective reasoning and this, don't blame people now that they're home. Yeah. <laughs> that the power of this limited reasoning is such, right, that it is very, very, very hard to escape it. And you simply, you do not escape it by providing more information. So 
What you have, therefore, is this kind of a Stephen Colbert, the American comedian says, it's truthiness. It's not the truth. You feel it in your gut. You don't know it in your head. Yeah? And that's what people have in the former Yugoslavia, and that's why the ICTY failed. OK, so the question now is, can we generalize this to other, um, other, other courts? I'm just trying to check what the time is, because I might overrust. Uh, so we know that not all courts have failed in the way that the ICTY has failed. So the question is, why not, right? Is it because they have done their work in a better way? Is it because, uh, uh, you know, as people have said, for example, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, it does all this wonderful outreach. And the STY did no outreach. And that's why the SCSL worked, and the STY did not work. Now, I don't think personally that that's the explanation. So I, what I do in this paper, I look at all of these factors that I've just outlined. And essentially, I see that they're present in almost every situation. So there will all obviously be differences from conflict to conflict, or from, from a society to society. But fundamentally, all of those limitations are still there. Yeah. So take distance. So as we said before, in, in the vast majority of cases, the, 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 you, know, you are not able to have direct experience of these crimes. You have to choose to trust somebody. Now, obviously, there are crimes that are conducted on an enormous scale. Think of the Holocaust. Or think Rwanda, where 800,000 people get chopped up by machetes by 100,000 perpetrators in a, in a couple of months. There is no way for most of those people who live in that country to have had no experience. But the fact that you have some experience of this crime tells you nothing. You, there's no way for you to directly be able to comprehend the scale of the crime. There's no way for an ordinary Rwandan to know from direct experience that 800,000 people died. Uh, he was in one village. He was not in 10,000 villages. There's no way for an Auschwitz survivor to know that one million people died in Auschwitz. I mean, how, how can you? There's no way you can do that. There's no way for you to know that six million people died in the Holocaust, even though you might be a victim yourself. So again, you have to rely on others. And even in cases that are not like former Yugoslavia, that are more like Rwanda, so much more immediate, um, distance will always reassert itself generationally, right? So the children of these people will have to choose whom to trust. They will have had no personal experience. Um, so as I said, all of these limitations would seem to be present everywhere. But there is one thing that is variable, that does change, and that's that last point that I made about political manipulation. What changes is elite reaction. So in some situations, like in the former Yugoslavia, the dominant political media, intellectual elites within a society, they produce an incredibly intense, in, uh, sustained, overwhelming negative reaction against the court. In other situations, they don't. <laughs> they could, but they don't. And I think that lack or existence of elite reaction is the main predictive factor that will tell you whether ultimately that tribunal will, will, will be believed or not be believed. Um, I try to disaggregate this a bit to explain, to, to sort of do a probabilistic argument as to when such negative reaction will be more likely. It will be more likely if you have a group that continues to have its own cohesion, sense of identity, and separateness from the other group, and is polarized toward that other group. So in the former Yugoslavia, you have 
groups that each have their own country. Or in Bosnia, they have their own part of the country. But in some other places, you don't have that. So in Rwanda, for example, the Tutsi control Rwanda. In Sri Lanka, the main Sri Lankan population has defeated the Tamils. Huh? So there is no, you know, there is, there, there is this option of total defeat that plays, plays, a, plays a part in some cases. The second question is, do you have elite continuity? Are the people who are in charge now, when a tribunal is doing its work, are they the same people who were in charge back then when you had the crimes? So for example, today in the former Yugoslavia, some of, I mean, some of these people are literally the same. Others are their children. For example, the chief Bosnian Muslim politician is the son of the Bosnian Muslim president during the war. Yeah? Or they are their sort of intellectual inheritors. So when you have a lot of elite continuity, you can sort of predict that you will have a negative reaction. For example, again, the current political elite of Kosovo, they are all, or virtually all of them, were in the Kosovo Liberation Army that fought against Serbia. That's who they are. So you know what you can expect from them. The third factor is the degree of authoritarianism, or conversely, the degree of genuine pluralism in a society. The more authoritarian the society is, the more the elite actually controls the media, the public education, generally the space for public discourse, the more likely that they can mobilize a very intense negative reaction against the tribunal. And finally, and most important, the question is, does the tribunal pose a threat to that elite? So in the former Yugoslavia, the tribunal did pose a threat, a threat to the main nationalist narratives of the Serb and Croat populations in particular. In other situations, the tribunal might pose no threat or might pose very little threat. And because opposition to a tribunal can be very costly, for example, internationally it costs you a lot. You're exerted to, to a lot of sanctions, diplomatic pressure, etc. You're not going to do it unless you have to. So it is only if there's a significant level of threat that comes from a tribunal that the local elites will really perceive oppositions to be necessary. So I'm doing a probabilistic argument. I'm not saying all the time in every single case you have to look at this and it will always be thus. I'm saying let's make it more likely. And so what they do now, the question is how much time I've got? Okay, fine, it's your funeral. Um, <laughs> I, I try to validate that hypothesis by looking at a number of case studies. Now, obviously, this is not a supremely reliable way of validating a hypothesis like this one. Uh, and if you have a counter example, I'd, I'd be very happy to hear it. But essentially, I look at various tribunals, and I try to look at whether they succeeded or failed, and at the presence of these predictive factors in, in these societies. So, for example, the two big success stories of of you know, international criminal justice, we say, are the Nuremberg and Tokyo International Military Tribunals. Tokyo less so as a court. You know, there's a famous uh, uh, little note by Sharif Basuni that it's a precedent that international law should uh, uh, understand with, uh, with a, a view of not repeating it. Um, but uh, basically we say, look at Germany, look at Japan, they're fine, they're fabulous, it worked. Yeah. These societies are very different from the societies that actually committed the crimes. So let me first talk a bit about the perceptions of the IMT in Germany. So interestingly enough, 
we actually have a lot of reliable survey data about the perceptions of the, uh, the, of the Nuremberg Tribunal in the German public as the trial was going on in the immediate aftermath. And the survey data was essentially done by the American military occupying uh, uh, powers. And they also had a lot, a lot of lovely things. They did this in Japan, for example. They censored all the mail. They read the mail. And so you wrote in your private mail to your brother, I don't know, oh, this tribunal is so bad or it's so good, and they would take a note of that. And so you have a lot of you know, solid data about what the population thought. You know, mass surveillance is such a nice thing. Uh, today you don't have to open mail, obviously. <clears throat> now, and all, some surveys have been done in West Germany uh, um, after the occupation had ended as well, after 1951. So obviously you can see there's a, a, a great contextual difference between Germany and the former Yugoslavia. So Germany was totally defeated. It was occupied. Yeah? The top echelon of its elite was decapitated. It was subjected to a transformative occupation you know, to turn it from a di dictatorship into a democracy. It was fundamentally realigned in terms of its uh, 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 international alliances to be a part of an American or Western-dominated uh, 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 bloc. Yeah? So there are many, many things that are, of course, different in Germany when compared to the former Yugoslavia. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at the surveys done through the occupation, actually had a very positive reception of the Nuremberg Tribunal in the German population. They liked it. The reason why they liked it is because they felt to be the victims of their elite. Yeah? They felt that the IMT punished people who were most guilty against them, who led them to this enormous chain of misery, you know, where the entire country is essentially bumped to nothing, where there's no food, there's no nothing. Yeah? That's how they perceived the IMT. They were fine with it. They were fine with Goering or, or I don't know who being punished. As soon as you ask them questions, but what about the Wehrmacht? What about the army? Where their sons served, you could see an enormous drop in what they felt to be you know, the fairness of the Nuremberg trial. Um, so the initial perceptions were positive. But in a space of very few years, those positive ratings of the IMT plummet. And how do they plummet? They plummet because as the occupation ends, the elites that govern Germany now reassert themselves and they do their best to discredit the tribunal and to simply portray it as an example of victor's justice. Here you have uh, some of the survey findings. For example, in 1950, only 38% of respondents thought that the IMT trial was fair, when four years before that, 78% thought that the trial was fair. So 40% drop, okay? 78% felt that they were not even morally implicated, not guilty, okay, but not morally implicated in the genocide of the Jews. 55% said that German soldiers could not be reproached for any wrong. As ordinary people, ordinary people. Uh, Two-thirds of the respondents felt that the numbers of victims of the Holocaust are either somewhat or strongly exaggerated. So what really happens in Germany as the occupation ends is you have this plummet into collective amnesia and silence. Holocaust is not something that's talked about. The war is not something that's talked about. 
but the IMT is completely discredited. Now, why? Because of the degree of elite continuity. Here we have a very nice quote from Tony Jott, who wrote a very important uh, history of, of, of post-war Europe. Uh, so he tells us, for example, in Bavaria 1951, 94% of judges and prosecutors were Nazis. 94%, okay? In the foreign ministry, yeah? One in three were members of the Nazi party. In the diplomatic corps, 43 were SS, yeah? And 17 has served in the Gestapo or the SD. So this level of continuity in the German uh, elites was enormous. And it went on not simply to the, the political echelons, it was media, education. So if, look at this, you know, universities and the legal profession were the least affected by denazification despite their notorious sympathy for Hitler. Okay, so what happened in Germany, however, was this silence. And the silence allowed the generation to grow up that knew nothing. So it's not like in, in, in the former Yugoslavia today where the new generation is being fed a standard narrative. The narrative in Germany was silence, it was nothing. Um, and Jot at least argues that it was this absence of knowledge that later led to change. And a number of other authors, you know, uh, uh, attribute catalytic effects over, over many decades to several different events. Uh, many of them say the biggest effect was not had by any trial. It was said by this Hollywood uh, uh, miniseries uh, called The Holocaust, starring a young Meryl Streep. So they're saying Meryl Streep had more impact on, on German catharsis than Nuremberg. Everybody watched it. It was aired over several days on German state TV. There were panels of historians sitting by the phone, taking the calls of, 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 of viewers. You had all these enormous debates, right? So this is when, when it happens in Germany where, you know, the children are interrogating their parents, you know, what happened, how could this have happened, yeah? So that's the process that happened in Germany. It had nothing really to do with the IMT. The IMT had something to do in the sense of disassociating the German populace from the very highest ranks of the Nazi elite. But it was not the IMT that persuaded the German population about anything, yeah? That happened later. Japan, let me talk about Japan a bit briefly. Um, Japan is actually way worse than Germany. How much time? Okay. Um, Japan is actually way worse than Germany. Uh, how is it way worse? Because even though you had an occupation and you had total defeat and you had some kind of purge, all of that was done on a much, much lower scale even compared to the relatively low scale you had in Germany. In Germany, by the way, because of the Cold War, they needed Germany. The Americans had to stop denazification and purges and so on. And the same thing happened in Japan, right? So not only did MacArthur say Hirohito, the emperor, and imperial family princes who were also involved, they're not gonna be prosecuted. We're only gonna prosecute the prime minister Tojo and that's gonna be it, yeah, and, uh, and the military elite. Uh, not only did you have that, but sort of this, uh, immediately after the IMT had ended and immediately after the occupation had ended, even those people who were suspected of being the so-called class A war criminals rejoined the political elite. So for example, one of the first prime ministers of modern Japan was this guy called Nobusuke Kishi. He was the minister for industry in Manchukuo, in occupied Manchuria, all right? So forced labor, think whatever, you know. 
Now, he was prime minister for some four years, and he's one of the arch architects of the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan. The current prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, is his grandson. Uh, and he has frequently talked about his grandfather and you know, the need to research his legacy, and so on. Um, the LDP has been in power in Japan since 1955. So we are saying Japan is a democracy, pluralist society. Since 1955, one party has been in power there except for four years. Seven of the last 10 prime ministers of Japan are either the sons or the grandsons of the immediate post-war prime ministers, all of whom were you know, coming from this right-wing conservative elite. <laughs> this morning. Yes. Yeah. So, la 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 la. Um, so, I had to do a happy thing, I mean, in the middle of a very depressing talk, come on. So um, immediately, right? Immediately, as the as the as the as the as the occupation ended, conservative elites in Japan did everything to discredit the IMT as victor's justice. They had ammunition to do it. I mean, don't get me wrong; there are many flaws with that trial, but immediately they set out to discredit it. Okay, and that thing, the unfairness of the trial, continues today to be a mainstay of revisionist discourse in Japan which is important for a lot of Japan's relations with its uh, neighbors, with Korea, with regard to comfort women, with regard to crimes in China, uh, controversies about history textbooks, etc. You have, of course, a rise of nationalism in all of these societies by and large. Um, now, it, it's not monolithic Japanese society. You have liberal elites who are resisting this, but they have never really been dominant. Okay? Today, for example, Abe, half of his cabinet, and a third of the diet, the legislature, are affiliated with this organization called Nippon Kaigi, which is a right-wing lobbying organization with an explicit revisionist uh, agenda. You have all seen you know, all those controversies about the visits of, of Japanese prime ministers to the Yasukuni shrine. Now, the Yasukuni shrine is a Shinto shrine, which is fine, you know, but it honors Japanese war dead. And the major war criminals after the IMT were in a, in a ceremony enshrined there, you know, depositing sort of their souls at the shrine. From that moment onwards, Emperor Hirohito and the current Emperor Akihito never went to that shrine. But prime ministers continue to go there, right? Every time a prime minister goes to the Asukuni shrine, uh, China gets uh, apoplectic, Korea gets apoplectic, yeah? Uh, the fabulous thing about it, outside the shrine, there's a very nice little memorial to the Indian judge of the IMT Tokyo, Judge Paul, who, remember, wrote that enormous dissenting opinion. Yeah? There's a shrine to a judge who voted to acquit Japan yeah, in front of Yasukuni. When Abe visited India 10 years ago, he spoke in the Indian parliament, and he spoke of Judge Paul's noble spirit of courage. Yeah? Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine? Uh, a Serbian prime minister doing something like that about a judge acquitting somebody in the STY. Huh? So that tells you, right, that in, in Japan, this kind of denialism is mainstream. It's not in Germany. In Germany, you know, some uh, weird Nazi types do it. In Germany, that's the mainstream political party, the prime minister who does it. Huh? And this is when people say, Marco, isn't it you know, too early to say about the ICTY and its failure? It hasn't been only 20 years. This has been 70 years, and it's still bad. Yeah? So time doesn't cure these things. Simply letting time pass doesn't make things go wrong. Anyway, uh, let me just say one word about Rwanda. 
and I'll finish. And I could talk also about Sierra Leone and Cambodia, but I'm not. Um, in Rwanda, you don't have this hatred of the ICTR as you have of the ICTY in, 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 in Yugoslavia. You have the ingredients for it. The main ingredient being that you have a Tutsi-dominated regime, which is a complete dictatorship. Yeah? So Paul Kagame wins 95% majorities like Kim Jong-un whenever he stands for election. They just changed the constitution so he could stand for election again. Uh, they could find 10 people in the whole country, 10 people in a country of millions that oppose this. Yeah? Everything is, is, is run by, uh, by, the, by the RPF. Okay, everything. So, um, including in compulsory instructions about the, the genocide against the Tutsis in, in, in public education. So if they wanted to, they could totally discredit the ICTR. They didn't. Why not? Because the ICTR never prosecuted Tutsi. It only prosecuted Hutus. So the ICTR was not a threat to them the way the ICTY was a threat to the former Yugoslavia. There was one point in time where the ICTR prosecutor, Carlo Del Ponte, who was at the same time ICTY prosecutor, said, I will prosecute some Tutsis. And Kagame orchestrated this enormous campaign against him, against her, using in part Western guilt, all this diplomatic capital that, that, that he still does as a sort of wonderful example of development in Africa. Yeah? Carlo Del Ponte was removed as, as ICTR prosecutor on the spurious, uh, 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 with the spurious justification that she couldn't do two jobs. Uh, her successor, Hassan Jallo, said, I'm not going to prosecute Tutsis. Two lower-ranking people were transferred to Rwanda, where they essentially got a sham trial, and one of them was convicted, the others were acquitted. So why you, you know, the ICTR has no place really in the collective memory in Rwanda. Nobody knows, knows about it or cares about it. But they don't hate it. They don't hate it because it's not necessary to hate it. And the same thing goes, uh, for, for Cambodia, where again you have a, a similar uh, dictatorial regime, where that regime, if it wants to uh, pull the nails out of the ECCC, can very easily do it because it's a hybrid court, it controls that court, it controls the money, it has it's cor corruption, it can do whatever it wants. So basically, I'm, sh I'm sorry for taking so long, I'm shutting up. I think you know that the experience that we have so far confirms the, the hypothesis that I have put forward. Now, the big question, of course, what's going to happen for other courts, for example, the, the special court tribunal for Lebanon. I mean, it's obvious they're in the same position as the former Yugoslavia. The new court for Kosovo, it's obvious that it's going to have the same fate as the ICTY. Somebody's going to love it, somebody's going to hate it. Depends on what they do, right? You can see the same dynamic with, with the ICC in Kenya. When the two political opponents, Kenyatta and Ruto, unite to fight the ICC, it's over. It's game over. What can the ICC do in Kenya when the, when the two of them oppose it? Yeah? It's going to be marginal. All right, so uh, the same thing you can think, you know, is the ICC going to persuade anybody in Russia about crimes in Georgia or whatever? It's, it's not going to work. Anyway, I'm, I'm really, thank you very much for, for listening to me for so long. Thank you. Just switch this off.